0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, the book of Matthew, Chapter 5, Continued 5. We have been in Matthew Chapter (laughs) 5 long enough that a reminder of the setting and the background for the Sermon on the Mount is in order. The setting is the Galilee. It is the serene, rural, agricultural, and shepherding center of the Holy Land. And above the Sea of Galilee, which was somewhat larger then than it is today, Are gentle rolling hills covered with mustard plants, poppies, a variety of grasses, small bushes. The trees are few, not very large. And somewhere in those hills, a crowd of thousands of Jews gathered, mostly the common folk, from places as far away as Syria. Why did they come? What drew them there? it was to encounter Yeshua. Was it a religious encounter they sought? Not in the sense we moderns think of it. In that era, what we would call religion was not separated and compartmentalized away from all other aspects of their lives a god or a spirit was always involved in whatever activity was occurring these thousands of jews however did not come because they thought they were going to meet their messiah matthew 4:23 through 52 yeshua went all over the galilee the galilee teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing people from every kind of disease and sickness. Word of Him spread throughout all Syria, and people brought to Him all who were ill, suffering from various diseases and pains, those held into the power of demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and He healed them. Huge crowds followed Him, from the Galilee, the Ten Towns, Jerusalem, Judah, and Aver Har Yarden, across the Jordan, seeing the crowds, Yeshua walked up the hill. And after He sat down, His disciples came to Him and then He began to speak. And this is what He taught them. So the people came, why? In hopes of healing of their physical ailments. The teaching they would receive was a bonus. Now likely the place was near to Capernaum, Nahum, because that was where Yeshua was currently residing. At this time the Jewish people looked upon Jesus as a tzaddik, a holy man that was a miracle-working healer. A tzaddik would come along every now and then without warning. These men could indeed actually heal. In the name and the power of the Lord God of Israel. So when a holy man appeared, the sick and the lame would flock to him. Now, Christ had not yet publicly revealed his divine nature, nor his mission as the Messiah that had been foretold in the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh. Now, I use the term Bible in a loose way. Jews did not own or carry around neatly, a neatly bound holy book, as we do in our time. For one reason, the various books of the Old Testament were written down on rather bulky scrolls, and since each precious word had to be copied and recopied by hand, there were few Jews that had such ability or authority to do so, and it was rare that even a well to do person might possess much more than a single book of the Bible. Therefore, actual scripture teaching occurred only at the local synagogue, where many could hear it at one time. And even the scripture teaching took a back seat to the teachings of the traditions of the elders. That the Pharisees who dominated the synagogues advocated and they insisted upon it. Now, as his speech to the crowd began, Yeshua first acknowledged who was present in a series of blessings. Next, he paused and he made this crucial statement. It was a sort of preamble prior to the remainder of his teaching. And there in it, he cautioned in a kind of Preemptive strike that in no way should anyone think that what he would say abolished, changed, added to, subtracted from the law and the prophets. Now, that term was shorthand for the entire Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. In wanting to be certain that he was not going to be misunderstood or misrepresented, he elaborated by saying that not even one letter in one word of the scriptures would be abolished or changed until the present heavens and earth passed away. And further, that anyone who disobeyed any part of the Holy Scriptures, the Law specifically, and they taught others to do so would be eternally relegated to the lowest possible rung of society and status in the Kingdom of Heaven. Afterwards, He began to teach, often by stating one or another of the Ten Commandments and explaining that while doing them was still required, The intent and the mental attitude that a worshiper approached in observing the commandment was every bit as important as the action itself. Reconciliation rather than revenge or even a lawsuit was what Christ's instruction in various situations was from having anger towards someone to the matter of collecting an unpaid debt. We left off at verse 26. So open your Bibles, please, to chapter 5, verse 27. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 27, and that begins if you have a complete Jewish Bible on page 1229, 1229. Matthew chapter 5 starting at verse 27. You have heard that our fathers were told, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that a man who even looks at a woman with the purpose of lusting after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you sin, gouge it out, throw it away. Better that you should you should lose one part of you than have your whole body thrown into thrown into Ge-hin-om. And if your right hand makes you sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better you should lose one part of you than have your whole body thrown into Gahinom. Now it was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a get. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of fornication makes her an adulteress, and that anyone who marries a divorcee commits adultery. Again you have heard. That our fathers were told, do not break your oath, keep your vows to Adonai. But I tell you not to swear at all, not by heaven because it is God's throne, not by earth because it is His footstool, not by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great King. Don't swear by your head because you can't make a single hair white or black. Just let your yes be a simple yes, your no, A simple no, anything more than this has its origin in evil. Now you have heard that our fathers were told eye for eye and tooth for tooth. I tell you not to stand up against someone who does you wrong. On the contrary, if someone hits you on the right cheek, let him hit you on the left cheek too. If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack for one mile, carry it for two when someone asks you for something give it to him when someone wants you to borrow something from you lend it to him now you have heard that our fathers were told love your neighbor and hate your enemy i tell you love your enemies pray for those who persecute you then you will become children of your father in heaven for he makes his sunshine on good and bad people alike He sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. What reward do you get if you only love those who love you? Why, even the tax collectors do that. And if you are really friendly only to your friends, are you doing anything out of the ordinary? Even the Gentiles do that. Therefore, be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I want to remind you of something I said from an earlier lesson. Yes, we are crawling through these verses at a pace that would make a snail seem like Secretariat. Now, the reason is that the Jewish cultural understanding that goes without saying to those who are in attendance. An understanding that is embedded in Yeshua's words is not usually known to us in the West in the 21st century. That cultural understanding provides the needed context for extracting correct meaning from Christ's statements, therefore for us to grasp the meaning and intent and to apply it properly to our lives. We must be open minded and willing to invest our time to be instructed in the ways and the customs of that ancient and foreign civilization. Yeshua quotes Exodus twenty fourteen, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now this commandment is the proverbial can of worms, since it's giving at Mount Sinai. It is a direct commandment concerning sexual behavior and the operation of morality within it. And since the command is brief, later Moses will give further instruction on it. Now, Today, in a time when even the fundamental concept of morality is questioned, even angrily rejected by some. Sexual behavior has become little more than a playground of pleasure seeking with nearly no boundaries whatsoever. It is not unusual for those who seek such pleasures to argue about what the Bible says regarding it and they enjoy reminding Christians that the Church long ago threw away the laws of God. And they replaced it with Jesus in love. So the conclusion is that this seventh commandment and all that offshoots, all the offshoots that stem from it, well, they no longer matter because Jesus did away with all those ancient sexual limitations. Now, if you want to know why sexual immorality is now the norm in the West simply look to the pulpit, it is Christian leaders, it is commentaries, who are responsible for this avalanche of sex sin due to their tolerance of anything and everything, due to the false doctrines and the denials of just plain Biblical truth. Now, understanding what this seventh commandment means and entails, well, that requires some explanation before we get into how Yeshua dealt with it. So, before we get to the second part of Christ's instruction about it, I want to draw heavily from a teaching I did on Exodus 2014 some years ago. The seventh commandment is that a married person should not commit adultery. Now, the first thing to understand is the entire concept of adultery by definition only occurs within the institution of marriage. Outside of marriage, adultery has no meaning. Marriage is not only an important element for God's plan for mankind, but it plays a role in God's relationship with mankind. The fundamental concept of a marriage is that a union occurs. As concerns human-to-human relationships, scripturally speaking, this marriage union is between a man and a woman. Let me say it again, there is no provision for same-sex marriage in the Bible. In fact, such a notion is an oxymoron. Now, while we too often think of marriage as a physical or maybe a sexual matter, or in our American society as a financial or a legal matter, in fact, the union God is dealing with in the seventh commandment is first and foremost a spiritual union. A spiritual union. Certainly in the present world, the physical aspects of marriage exist and not the least of reasons for it is the propagation of our species. From Jehovah's perspective, the sin of adultery is less about a husband or wife having a physical sexual union outside of their marriage than it is about our spirits entering into an unauthorized union with another. God has authorized that a man and a woman before him may be joined in every level of union between themselves, but only between themselves. The only other union allowed within that marriage is with God. Now, you probably noticed that our union with Christ is often spoken of in the Bible using marriage terminology. And its use is both metaphorical and real. That fact should help us to be more aware of just how we're to consider the essence of marriage from Jehovah's point of view, and how we are to consider the nature of our relationship with Christ. See, just as an earthly marriage is meant to be a man and a woman coming into union with one another. Salvation is humanity's union with Christ. Now, We who are Christ's are, figuratively speaking, in a state of betrothal to Him right now. We are in the marriage process. Right now Christ is with us in spirit, so we are in union with Him in spirit. But there will be a time in the future when we are in union with Him in more, much more tangible and complete way. So even during our current earthly time of betrothal to Christ, for us to come into union with someone or something that is forbidden is to place us into a state of unfaithfulness to Christ. Therefore, this puts us in a state of adultery in our relationship with Christ. The New Testament Greek word, moikos, which is typically correctly translated as adultery, must be understood in its Old Testament Hebrew sense in order for us to fully understand what God's telling us about adultery. Now, when the Hebrews spoke of adultery, they meant unfaithfulness to your partner, your union partner. It did not have to be an overt act of having sex with another person to be considered adultery, although most often that is what occurred. What constituted adultery and the proper proofs and punishments for it changed considerably over time during the time of the patriarchs. Adultery required the wife to have had sex with another man. No proof other than the husband's suspicions were needed, and he himself could put her to death. The Laws of Moses brought the requirement for conviction to a minimum of two witnesses. By the time of Christ, much more proof was needed, a court of law would rule on the matter, and death was still one of a range of possible punishments. Not long after Christ, the death penalty was removed for the sin of adultery because it had become so rampant within Jewish society that it was almost impossible to police, and the number of women that would have been executed was so large as to make carrying out the death sentence unthinkable. During all Biblical times, adultery was considered primarily a female crime and sin, men were usually not subject to it. Now There are certain unions available to mankind that we are prohibited entering into, especially if we wish to also be in union with Christ. In other words, there are some unions that are mutually exclusive. An extreme example would be that if we were to come into spiritual union with Satan, we cannot also be in spiritual union with Christ, those two relationships being mutually exclusive. There are other forbidden unions. All of them are destructive. So we need to understand the very serious nature of this particular sin in a much broader context than we typically think about it. Now, in Matthew 5 27 and 28, Yeshua essentially explains how adultery comes about. It is that it, is, it always begins in the mind, it's a product of our evil inclination. If one first doesn't fantasize about it and embrace the idea, it doesn't happen. Therefore when married men eye other women in a lustful way, then Yeshua says that from God's perspective the act of adultery has already occurred the thought being that embracing the idea inevitably leads to the doing of it. The God principle is that just as anger is the initiating cause of murder, so is lust the initiating cause of adultery. Now, Especially in the 21st century, pornography is perhaps the number one expression of lust in the lives of males, married or otherwise. There can be no intellectually honest defense of the use of pornography as anything other than immoral lusting and therefore it is sin, and there is no doubt that the widespread use of pornography has ignited this epidemic of adultery in our society. Yet I want to be clear, the notion being spoken by Christ that the intention is to be considered as the deed that was nothing new or novel among the Jews. The Academy of Shammai which represents the source of doctrine for one of the two greatest factions of the Pharisees at the time of Jesus, also taught this same principle. Now, Although Yeshua quoted from and is discussing the 7th commandment, His instruction about adultery actually approaches the matter through the worldview of the 10th commandment, do not covet, that is, coveting Is a sinful state of the mind. Coveting is a sinful intention. It is the desire to obtain, to obtain something forbidden. Coveting is not the action itself. Thus, it is the disobedience to the tenth commandment, that's where the intent occurs, that ushers in the disobedience to the 7th commandment where the actual physical deed of adultery occurs. Yeshua continues to expand on this matter of intention, leading to doing of the sin. He does this in verses 29 and 30. So Verse 28 speaks of looking upon a woman, coveting, and verse 29 says that even if if it is your right eye that you are using to look, then you should gouge it out and get rid of it. See, In Jewish thought, the right side of anything is the best side, or the strongest side, so it is the most valuable side. Therefore it is not only that you lose your eye, you lose your best eye. Now, Naturally this is an expression, because unless you have some damaged eyes, for most people our two eyes see fairly equally well. And why should someone who is prone to lusting after women gouge out their best eye? Because it's better to lose that eye than it is to have our entire body thrown into Gehinom and destroyed. Now, even if one doesn't know what gay is, man, it sounds like a really bad thing. Bad thing nobody wants to have happen to them. Now, many translations will use the word hell. That isn't exactly wrong, but it certainly isn't right. Gay is actually a valley. A valley that runs through the south of Jerusalem, today it is simply known as the Hinnom Valley. In Yeshua's era, it was Jerusalem's municipal garbage dump. Jerusalem was a city with several thousand people living there. and As you might imagine, they generated tons of trash, animal carcasses, human waste items that became unclean through contact with blood or other bodily fluids that saturated them, and so on. Every filthy and disgusting thing you can think of was thrown into that valley. The refuse was then lit on fire and the fires burned continually, night and day. Sulfur was thrown onto it to try and disguise the nauseating odors. It is well documented that in prior times this same valley was used for the same purposes, but it was also used by the Canaanites for human sacrifice, often of children. The dead bodies of those murdered were simply thrown into the burning waste. So it is easily seen that the threat of sinning a sin that could cause you to be thrown to Gehinnom was about the worst punishment imaginable. It is true that the idea of hell, a place of fire and torment for the dead, was associated with Gehinnom. But hell was viewed as an underworld place where the wicked dead lived. Judeo-Christianity would say it's a spiritual place of evil. Gay in the first century was as real and tangible as it gets. In Christ's day, it wasn't evil, but it was unclean and frighteningly disgusting. Now, I suppose Christ's instruction that plucking your eye out and discarding it as a good solution to lust can only be labeled at our modern Western terms as exaggeration and hyperbole, because he certainly was not suggesting self-mutilation. The point was to illustrate just how serious of a sin adultery is, At, since the fuel of adultery is lust coveting, and the source of that fuel was taken in through the portal of the eye then one should make every effort to avoid it, even if it means destroying the portal. Now notice that Yeshua is talking to the men. Now remember, in His day, adultery was seen in Jewish society as primarily a crime committed by women. Men were largely exempt, so this teaching was a was a battering ram to challenge and to smash this false doctrine that so favored males. Ironically, it is men who are really attempt, really tempted the most by lust because men, man, we are visually oriented creatures. This is why pornography is such a great and destructive temptation for men. It will never stop being a temptation as long as it exists. And men, don't you ever think you will be the one who can use pornography for whatever your reason and that it won't inevitably lead you to wrong sexual behavior because you are uniquely able to resist it. It is no different than the person who believes. They can use cocaine, or crack, or meth, and they are going to be the one who will avoid becoming addicted. Is using pornography a sin? Of course it is, because it is lusting, it is coveting after women who are not your wife. And yes, single men, it is similar for you. It is lust and the fantasizing it, produced, it produces that leads to wrong sexual behavior. Once again, lust is coveting. It is exactly what Jesus is warning about. So then in verse 30 Christ adds to this dramatic hyperbole by saying that if your right hand makes you sin, cut it off. Just as with the lustful eye, once again the meaning of right is best, your best hand. And while the eye is the portal to the invisible mind, the hand is representative of the visible physical part of us that carries out what the mind instructs the body to do. In another setting, while with His disciples, Yeshua repeats this same principle using similar illustrations. And he does it in Matthew chapter 18, verse 9. If your eye is a snare for you, gouge it out and fling it away. Better that you should be one eyed, but obtain eternal life than to keep both eyes and be thrown into the fires of Gehenom. So Christ now moves on to the next subject in verse 31. But it's not altogether detached from the subject of verses 27 to 30. And the subject is divorce. But it includes the possibility that under certain circumstances, divorce can cause the woman to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries her then becomes a participant in her adultery, which then makes them an adulterer as well. I want to pause here to comment that, especially. That in the Bible, especially so in the Old Testament, because it is also, but it's also the case huh, in the New Testament, it is men who divorce their wives, not, a, not the other way around. And it is the woman who generally bears the blame and any punishment involved. We have to take this in the context of that era. It was a society that was male dominated. To a degree that Western women in the 21st century have not experienced. Jewish women at that time were not chattel, but they also had a little power. By custom the lives of women were in the hands of men. Therefore, when Yeshua speaks of divorce, it is of course of a man divorcing his wife. And, says Jesus, the only reason a man could legitimately and without consequence divorce his wife is IF she has been unfaithful to him. And notice there is no thought of the man being unfaithful to his wife, which in reality had a much higher probability of happening. Yeshua's entire treatment of divorce finds its original source In the Torah, in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let me read some of it to you, starting with verse 1. Suppose a man marries a woman and consummates the marriage, but later finds her displeasing because he has found her offensive in some respect. He writes her a divorce document, he gives it to her. Sends her away from his house. She leaves his house, goes and becomes another man's wife. But the second husband dislikes her and writes her a get, gives it to her and sends her away from his house. Or the second husband, whom she marries, dies. In such a case, her first husband who sent her away may not take her again as his wife because now she's defiled. It would be detestable to Adonai and you are not to bring about sin in the land. I deny your God is giving you as your inheritance. Now, Deuteronomy deals with some nuances within a divorce situation, making divorce an undesirable but not illegal occurrence. Yeshua doesn't overturn it, he doesn't change it. He merely makes the case that divorce should not happen in the first place. But if it does, the only legitimate reason for a man to divorce his wife is her unfaithfulness to him. Now, Matthew's description of Christ's words are frankly not very easy to interpret. They are difficult. I believe there are two main reasons for this, this great difficulty. First, I suspect there is some kind of textual corruption of the Greek manuscripts that are the oldest ones we have. Second, there are some unspoken cultural customs that the people of that era went by that we are just not familiar with. We don't know what they were. Now if we take what is said perfectly literally, then basically we have Christ saying that a woman who is divorced by her husband is automatically guilty of adultery. That she becomes an adulteress is said to be caused by her husband. Now, this hardly seems reasonable if for no other reason it does not adhere to the basic God principle that we're each responsible only for our own sins, not the sins of others. In the case of a divorce involving a woman who had remained faithful to her husband, the wife had a little to no say in the matter. She certainly wasn't the party to cause the divorce or to initiate it, so this situation doesn't jibe with Deuteronomy. Their divorced woman is not in any way labeled as an adulteress simply because her husband becomes displeased with her and decides to divorce her. Further Christ's words are that if the divorced woman gets remarried, then her new husband also becomes guilty of adultery. Deuteronomy in no way puts such a conviction of adultery upon a divorced woman's new husband. Now, it is well known historically that divorce ran rampant in the first century Jewish community. Men would frivolously divorce their wives, go have a quick affair with another woman, and then come back and remarry the same woman, sometimes in a matter of a few days. This was because that way the Law of Moses was interpreted by many of the rabbis. It was that the man could technically avoid the sin of adultery, a sin within a marriage, by first divorcing his wife before he then went, had a brief tryst with another woman, and then that, then because a man uh, divorcing his wife was not labeled as a sin for the husband in the law, then he was home free. Now, could it be this was the background for Yeshua's words? I think it's a definite possibility. I mean, most everything we read in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, also Christ's words, took place in the setting and the circumstances of the times. The only other possibility in my mind is that Yeshua was saying that divorce and remarriage destroy the concept of lifelong monogamy. So no amount of rules about divorce, no matter how fair, change the fact that the underlying meaning of marriage in the first place is a permanent bond between a man and a woman. But I think that might be a little bit of a stretch, not something his audience would have taken from his instruction. Well, In verse 33 it seems as though Yeshua leaves the subject of the Ten Commandments and gets into some other standard rules within Jewish society, however, buried in it is a reference to another of the Ten Commandments. Nearly every Bible version has its own unique translation of Christ's words, because this interpretation, too, is a bit difficult. The complete Jewish Bible version and a few others use both the words vow and oath, and so some commentators try to approach this verse on the basis of distinguishing between the meaning of a vow versus the meaning of an oath. However in most sittings in the Bible, distinction between vow and oath is paper thin. For all practical word, the purposes, of the words are interchangeable. I think the Young's literal translation is the best of the bunch. Matthew 5:33. Again, ye heard that it was said to the ancients, "Thou shalt not swear falsely, but thou shalt pay to the Lord thine oaths." Okay, whenever a person swore, they swore something that meant that the person was certifying the truthfulness and the veracity of a statement or transaction by swearing by nature it invoked the name of that person's god it invoked the name of that person's god therefore among jews to swear something automatically meant to invoke jehovah's name as the guarantor of whatever the statement of the transaction was this was absolutely in line with a command of God given in the Torah, Leviticus nine twelve, do not swear by my name falsely, which would be profaning the name of your God. I am Adonai. This gets fleshed out a little bit further, a little later on in the Torah in Numbers chapter thirty verses two and three. Then Moshe spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, and he said, Here's what Adonai has ordered. When a man makes a vow to Adonai, or he formally obligates himself by swearing an oath, he is not to break his word, he to do everything he said he would do. But Yeshua says, don't swear at all. Not even if you were NOT using God's name, don't swear at all. That is, don't swear by anything, don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, don't swear by Jerusalem. Heaven is God's created place. That's where his throne's located. Don't swear by earth because it is God's created place. And it's said in Isaiah 66, it's his property. As a matter of fact, it's his footstool, to be specific. And don't swear by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great kings. This is a reference to God's created dwelling place. All of this seems logical within the religious sphere, doesn't it? All these things, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, are part of God's realm. So they have a firm relationship to God. But then Yeshua says, also, don't swear by your head. C- clearly, your head is not part of God's realm. In the Mishnah, generally speaking, the rule was that oaths sworn by heaven, earth, even the temple, were not valid. Yeshua goes on to say, rather than swearing an oath, just make your yes-yes and your no-no. In fact, he says that to do anything more has its origin in evil. Those last few words especially are what have caused all sorts of various opinions about exactly what Yeshua is instructing, uh, instructing. Frankly. The main problem for the many denominations in deciding what to do with this statement has to do with the first and foremost doctrine of the Christian Church. It is that the Old Testament, along with all its rules, laws, instructions, prohibitions etc. are dead and gone, so there is no point to even looking at it for answers. That false doctrine is what causes needless confusion in understanding this matter. First of all, there is no prohibition against making vows and oaths in the Torah or anywhere in the Old Testament. And at least the early church that was organized and first operated out of synagogues, and administered mostly by Jewish believers, never understood Jesus as to be no longer allowing vows my goodness even the apostle paul felt obligated to fulfill a vow such that he ventured to jerusalem in the temple to do so since yeshua made it abundantly clear in matthew 5:17 through 19 nothing he would say was in any way meant to be taken that he was abolishing changing adding subtracting from not just only the Torah but the entire Tanakh, in other words, the Old Testament, the only Bible that existed, then that must always be our point of reference when we are trying to interpret His statements. We have to always fall back to that point. Now, Just as marriage and divorce had become frivolous within Jewish society during Christ's era, so was making frivolous vows that the vow-maker had no intent of actually following through with it. It had just become a manner of speech. You know what? We do that in our time. We do. We say things like, with God as my witness, or we say, well, the, only the Lord knows. See, this is using the Lord's name as a guarantor Of what it is that you are claiming. In other words, you're making an oath or vow, even though you didn't realize it. But that's the nature of being frivolous. And that violates the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Again, it is, is it wrong? Is it wrong to make an oath or a vow in God's name? No. It's not. But God absolutely expects us to do what we vowed, or that what we claim is true. Otherwise we have used His name in vain. Now at the same time, God does not command us to make an oath or a vow to prove our truthfulness or our intent. However, as we learn when reading in Judges, about the tragedy of Jephthah's innocent daughter. Making a frivolous or careless vow that we can't or don't carry out can have disastrous unintended consequences, or it can remain as an albatross around our neck. Christ's viewpoint is, hey, just don't make vows, don't make oaths, don't do it at all. One more time, by nature, in the Biblical era, vows and oaths automatically included invoking God's name, so we must understand vows and oaths in that same context. In a legitimate religious setting, such as a marriage ceremony, of course it is proper to make a vow. But in a typical daily social setting or in a business transaction, my advice is stay clear. Stay clear. You don't have to go there. You don't have to back up your yes by invoking God's name. You don't have to back up your no by invoking God's name. Just be truthful. That's enough. Especially that's so for a follower of Christ. Well, this issue about Jesus saying that going any further than yes or no has its origin in evil is clearly addressing a cultural and societal issue of that time, which we've already discussed, because making a legitimate vow or oath in God's name is in no way evil. But it can be fraught with danger for the one who makes that vow. We're going to stop here for today and finally conclude Matthew chapter 5 next time.